Welcome to the Chaka Life Podcast. My guest today is Michelle Rourke, who spent 16 years on the U.S. freestyle ski team. She's a former Olympian, World Cup champion, national champion, and world champion silver medalist on the World Cup Tour. During her incredible time as an athlete, she persevered through seven knee surgeries and faced many hardships raising funds to keep her athletic dreams alive. After completing a chemical engineering degree, she launched Fia Lab, an all-natural perfume and body products company rooted in the divine proportions of the number pi. Most importantly, Michelle's attitude in life is to live, love, be phenomenal, and to surround herself with people who believe in the same. Welcome, Michelle. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. So... When I met you, I was incredibly intrigued by your story. You are someone who has persevered through a lot of things. And talk a little bit about your journey, first of all, to becoming an Olympic uh, skier. Okay. Um, well, you know, when I was five years old, I knew I wanted to be two things. One, an Olympian, and two, a chemical engineer, which you may think how does a five-year-old know she wants to be a chemical engineer? But there is actually a story that goes along with it, and it's true, and I totally stuck with it. Um, and with the Olympic goal, I want to start off in figure skating and thought I'd always go to the Olympics in figure skating and loved, loved, loved it. Um, when that came to kind of a, a crashing halt, just um, it was too much of a strain on my family at the time, and it was so expensive, and they were going through a divorce and other things. Um, I decided if I couldn't succeed in that, I would succeed in something else, and I took up um, freestyle mogul skiing and uh, started pursuing a goal of going to the Olympics in that, which was finally accomplished in 2006 and 2010. So I'm curious, when you... Uh started out in figure skating. How did you start out in that? Was that something that you saw and you just thought, I want to do that. That's something I'm going to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, similar with the chemical engineering when I was five, I, I watched the Olympics and I I saw the skaters on TV and thought that's what I want to do. Um, and then, uh, just kind of went from there. So really, really loved it and asked, since I was five, asked like almost every night if my dad would put me in, in skating or gymnastics or dance, but I really wanted to do skating is what I would always tell him. And then finally, when I was seven, we moved to Colorado and he finally enrolled me in some skating classes and it just took off from there. And so you said you had to stop. Was that because of financial difficulties then? So I was nationally ranked. I skated with Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding, um, went to the nationals and skated like about five hours a day. I'd get up at 4.30 every morning and go skating before school, and then I would skate after school. I was extremely dedicated. I really, really loved it. Um, But when I was 15, my parents were going through a divorce, and it was just too much of a financial burden for them, and it it was very – it is a very expensive sport, especially back then because you had to do – the patch skating as well. So it was like double the ice time. But anyhow, um, it was just, it was just too expensive for us to continue. And, and as a 15 year old girl, I really didn't have any other means. So that door was just kind of shut. Well, it's interesting because um, nobody thinks of skiing as sort of a a cheaper and easier alternative. So (laughs) how did that come about? And especially moguls, which is kind of punishing. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Well, um, I was really fortunate. Um, They, um, 
it was right on the cusp of being accepted as an Olympic sport when I was going into it. So it was, it was getting its acceptance. Um, but at the same time, it was still pro. So you could um, have sponsors for skiing. Um, whereas figure skating, you could not have any sponsors at all. Or you would be doing your amateur status and you wouldn't be able to go to the Olympics back then. Um, so my first year competing, I won junior nationals. I won qualified for the U.S. ski team. I won pretty much everything that I competed in, and I got sponsored right away. And there's this wonderful program in Colorado, Colorado All-Star Program done by Colorado Ski Country, where the top 10% of um, competitive skiers in Colorado get a gold card from Colorado Ski Country. So it allowed me to ski free at all ski areas in Colorado, which was really, really, really helpful. And then sponsors helped me with entry fees and everything like that. Although it was still certainly, certainly a struggle. It wasn't like um, sponsors were throwing money at me. I was still struggling to get by. I sold off everything I owned. I hitchhiked to competitions. I lived in a tent. I worked three jobs. I just found a way to make it happen. You know, and and that makes me wonder, how do you think you got that kind of drive and determination? Do you think you were just born with it? Did, what? How do you get that that drive to just do whatever it takes? I think I just set my sights on a goal early on and I, I wasn't um, willing to give up on that or, or be deterred from it. I was just, if a door was shut, I was going to find a window to climb through. Or <laughs> if somebody if somebody got in my way, there's always naysayers. There's a ton of those. In fact, the biggest naysayers for me were my family, but I just figured out a way to go around them. Not... Um, not be mean or step on anybody, but just go around people like that and, and figure out how to make it still work for you. Well, and that, and when you talk about living in a tent, I did see a story about you moving to Winter Park and living in a tent for six months, was it? Yeah, um, on and off every summer. I, I was pretty much in the tent for a period of time. Obviously, couldn't do it in the winter. <laughs> Come to find out now, I, I think it was illegal. I was on um, national uh, forest land. Um, but at the time, I didn't know that that wasn't um, kosher. I just found a place in the woods that I thought would be safe and away from anybody who might not be safe. <laughs> um, just kind of tried to hide in there for a little bit to have a... You know, just to to make things work. Like I said, I was I was working three jobs. I worked at Carver's Bakery in town, um, and I worked at the movie theater, and I worked at the t-shirt shop, and I also went to high school. So I wanted to get good grades to make sure I could get into a good school. I I knew um, Colorado School of Mines was one of the best chemical engineering schools in the in the world, really. And so I I really wanted to make sure I was going to qualify to get in there because that was another one of my goals. So I I did good with school and studying and working and um, really being creative with with the <laughs> limited finances I had at the time and made it work. So how old were you when you did this? Um, I moved up to Winter Park when I was 16. And did that require you being emancipated from your parents? No. Um, I just called my dad and said, I'm, I'm going to go to school up here. I need you to sign this paper. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> so <laughs> It sounds like they, they knew by then that they couldn't get in your way. <laughs> I mean, maybe. Well, and I mean, if people go through difficult times and they may make decisions that they're not proud of, but they also are, you know, it, it can be so difficult for somebody when they're in, when they're unhappy, that they just need to focus on themselves at that time. You know, right. I, I didn't need to get in their way, so um, they just need to figure it out, and I need to figure it out, and we just need to do our own thing. 
did you meet anybody in in this journey that was sort of kind of doing the same thing that you were? Oh, no. I'm thinking, yeah. No. And, I, and I didn't really tell anybody. So none of, none of the people I skied with knew, at least not at the time. Not until many, many years later when I felt comfortable talking about it. But I never told anybody because I was embarrassed. And I and he didn't want it to um, work against me. I didn't want them to think I wouldn't be capable of skiing on World Cup if because I had no family support at the time. Um, and so he really just hit it mostly. Um, and I was thankful to have some really wonderful, influential people outside of the family unit that I came across that um, just either said something at the right time that was inspirational that I needed to hear or showed me how life could be outside of what I had been living in. Yeah, it's important, isn't it, to sort of see that. But uh, it is pretty incredible that you found that drive and determination completely on your own. I am curious, though, did you come from a family of high achievers, people that had expectations? I mean, before they went through that difficult time, was there always an expectation that, you know, you were going to do incredible things? No, I don't think so. Um, my dad was an incredible athlete. He and he still is. He's amazing. I mean, gosh, I can't even keep up with him on the ski hill. And I, I'm a two-time Olympian, and he's like 65. Um, you know, he's a, he's an amazing athlete. So I think I definitely got some of that from him. He's also very competitive. So I, I think I definitely got some of that from him. Um, my mother, on the other hand, is kind of the total opposite. They were like black and white. So she's the total opposite. Not athletic at all. Um, definitely not very competitive not just the opposite of what I have just described. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You often wonder because I think a lot of people look at someone like you and sort of expect that there was um, someone that helped them along the way. And I'm sure there were people here and there, but you just had it in your head that these were things that you were going to do. And you went for it. Um, And luckily you had success, but then also... Uh, you had, was it seven knee injuries that you had to make a comeback from? Yeah, I, it definitely wasn't, definitely wasn't easy. It was, it was definitely the long road as well. I mean, I, I, I should have gone to the 98 Olympics and the 2002 Olympics and even possibly the 94 Olympics. And I always got injured at a really bad time. I would be leading the World Cup and I'd blow out my knee the year before the Olympic Games. So I, I for a while, I was like, oh my gosh, this just isn't going to happen. This isn't, this isn't, wasn't in the cards for me. Um, and then I was about to retire after the 2002 Olympics. Um, I was I had had a really, I was leading the World Cup in 2001, and then I went down on the Deer Valley course, and I hurt, I did my knee so bad, it took three knee surgeries to fix, and the doctor said, you'll never ski moguls competitively again, et cetera, et cetera, and so anyhow, I was going to retire, I did some commentating at the 2002 Olympics when I was going to retire, but I was lucky enough to meet the, a really, 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 really amazing man in 2000 when I was rehabbing my other knee surgery, um, and he encouraged me to keep going. And together as a team, when I finally, I think the difference was having some support, you know, instead of none <laughs> before. Right. I um, had a lot of um, emotional and um, physical and, and loving support from him that I think was the difference. And that's why I qualified for the 2006 Olympics as well as the 2010. 
coming back from those kinds of injuries probably almost pushed you over the edge, but you had someone then at that right time that you did meet, and you must have opened yourself up to that as well. A very determined, ambitious girl, traveling the world skiing and going to Colorado School of Mines whenever I had time. So it was very busy, So um, and also there aren't, there aren't many men that want to put up with a girl who's traveling all over the world <laughs> and, <laughs> and doing these things. It, it sort of takes a quiet confidence that I was lucky he really had. Right. So you completed your degree while you were also going after these other goals and continuing to ski? Yeah, and I, that that leads into what I do now. So I'm a, I've been a perfumer, well, chemical engineer and a perfumer for eight years, and I have my own line of all-natural perfume and body products, as well as a salon and spa I own in downtown Denver. And how did you decide to take that chemical engineering degree? Because it wasn't just chemical engineering, wasn't it also petroleum engineering and something else here? And how did that turn into a perfume entrepreneurship? Well, I specialized in um, petroleum and refining, and I tell people I... I uh, it's still refined oil, just the essential kind, a different type of oil, the essential kind. Um, and when I was skiing on World Cup, the sports psychologist said, make sure you cover all five of your senses when you visualize, hear it, feel it, see it, taste it, smell it. And I could do all five, but I had no idea what it smelled like to ski well. So I thought, well, I'll find a fragrance. I'll wear it just for skiing. It'll be my sense of competition. Only if highly dissatisfied with commercial blends, they would often give me a headache. They'd sometimes burn my nose. They'd be gone within an hour. So I thought, well, I'll just apply my background and make my own. And so that's how that all started way back when and really evolved into so much more. And it's funny, I since I was five, I wanted to be a chemical engineer and compete in the Olympics. And I never said I wanted to be a perfumer or um, have my own product line. But doing those other two things, the skiing and the engineering, led me exactly to where I am. And I just know that this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. And what would you say about also when, when you talk about visualizing your journey, visualizing your perfect run, can you tell me a little bit about how that works? Because obviously you use that in many facets of your life and that's how it got you to this place. Can you just tell me a little bit about how that works for you? For me, it's been so important. It's like nothing can come to fruition that I've, that I've dreamed of until I could clearly visualize it. Um, even with the incredible building that I have now in downtown Denver, I, I really visualized every single aspect of it before it came to fruition. And, um, you know, if you see it, I know, and knowing where I've been, it seems like a radical miracle that I was able to obtain right. it. So, <laughs> um, but visualization's always been a really important part of my life. And um, on World Cup, I would... Gosh, I, I would impress all of the coaches and uh, other athletes because I wouldn't be able to make it down the course at all in the five days prior to the competition where we trained the course. I mean, there was like, I was a mess. I was falling. I, there was just no way I could make it off the top air. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Everything I tried, I couldn't do it. But it, it never failed when it came to competition day. I would just get up to the top and visualize it and visualize it into fruition. And when I stepped into the course for the competition run, I always nailed it. So I skied in over 100 World Cups, and I only had three runs in finals where I didn't ski the way I wanted to. So how did you learn this skill? And what what would you say to other people that want to learn this skill? Because I do um, think it's I absolutely think when important. I was, 
Yeah, I think it's really important. And um, and I also think covering all of your senses is important. I mean, you think of a professional athlete or even any sort of professional who wants to nail a presentation or um, some sort of sale or whatever it is, um, we're always looking for the edge. You know, especially when you're an elite athlete, the littlest thing makes the biggest difference. So um, athletes are always trying to invoke the zone, the memory and emotion of skiing perfectly or performing perfectly and whatever it may be. And we try to invoke that by listening to a certain type of music. We all have a competition playlist on our iPods. You know, we listen to that on comp day to try to get into that, that emotion and that feeling of skiing perfectly. We do a ton of visualization. We wear our lucky socks for a certain type of feel. But we almost always are overlooking our sense of smell when that's the sense that is directly related to the part of the brain we're trying to tap into. So the sense of smell is directly related to memory and emotion. So if I'm trying to invoke that feeling, that memory, that emotion of skiing perfectly, why wouldn't I use my sense of smell to tap into that? So that sort of helped me in the whole like invoking the zone and just taking the visualization to another level, you know, by incorporating all of the senses. Um, but I do think visualization is super important. I first got into that in skating. Our uh, My pro back then um, brought in like a sports psychologist to teach us how to visualize at an early age. So I think that's just where that came from and I just developed on it through the years. And so do you always go into that whenever you have a new idea? Because I, for some reason, I don't think that, I know that your perfume company will sustain, but I have an inkling that you might go into a few other things in your lifetime. So I'm wondering, <laughs> do you have sort of a, a daily meditation time where you um, use it to brainstorm or dream or think about things? And, and if you wanted to go into something new, is that what you would do? Um, I don't, I wouldn't say I have a daily meditation. I probably should have some time set aside for that, but I don't really, I've never done that my whole life. I'll just, I, I love to work out. So, um, I think in, in working out, um, spurs creative thought in my opinion. Um, so that's usually where I get new ideas. And if, if I was going to do something new, yeah, I would visualize it inside and out and make it happen. If, if that's what if that answered your question, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, it does. It it almost sounds too easy, but some of this stuff is exactly that. It's just the practice of it and perfecting it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, um, would you talk about some of your fragrances that you've developed and and what you see them helping people with? Um. Well, I'm so glad that you asked. <laughs> I might not shut up if I start talking about perfume, but um, we we have um, six different energy bouquets, and so what I've really been interested in over the last several years is doing research to back up the medicinal purposes of essential oils. So aromatherapy has been a true medicine around for 3,000 years, although it's pushed aside to traditional medicine today because there's lack of real data or understanding on how it works. Um, so I set out to sort of bridge that gap in some way, and I built a device to measure the electric energy of essential oils, and then I was able to classify them into five different um, energy categories based on their electric energy. And then we looked at commonalities amongst the categories. So we looked at their physical properties, their major chemical constituents, and their social-emotional properties, and found that there was consistency amongst the social-emotional properties. So everything vibrating in the area of like 170 kilojoules per mole were things like mango, coconut, magnolia, were 
we found that they had similar properties, social, emotional, from the 3,000-year-old practice of aromatherapy, saying that they do things like open the mind and release fear. On the opposite end of the spectrum, in about 300 kilojoules per mole, I found things like bergamot, palmarosa, rose geranium, and we found that their commonalities in their social-emotional area were properties that they um, increase energy and our confidence building. And then, likewise, we had a category in the middle that was balanced to the right of that imagination and to the left of that focus. So the line that I do is all based around that and that research. So we have um, a pure energy that vibrates in the area of 170 kilojoules per mole, which we named Adventure. That's the one that opens the mind and releases fear. Um, as I said before, confidence and then the balance, imagination, focus, and we also have grounding. So when someone comes into your salon, a lot of people do energy work. Do you look at their energy? Do you t- have them tell you what th- what energy needs they have, or do you evaluate what they need? Um, that's a great question. So I, I I don't consider myself an expert in that field. What I do have is um, I've done extensive custom blending for people for many years now. And so they would come in and fill out a seven-page questionnaire. It would help me determine their scent profile. Based on that, I'd pull from my hundreds of essences in my essence vault. And then they would sit down with me and we would build their fragrance from the top, the middle, to the bottom notes. They would leave, I'd blend them three samples, I think would be ideal for them based on our interview. Then they would pick up the samples, chime on their skin, see how they react with their own body chemistry, see how their significant other likes it. Then they would um, decide, they'd call in their favorite formula and we'd put that in our own unique bottle and voila, they have a scent that's truly their own. Well, I took all of that data and compiled and do a spreadsheet and built an algorithm out of it. So currently we're working on an app where it'll be similar questions and it'll spit out an energy bouquet that's right for them <laughs> based on our data. I love that. I Is there <laughs> anyone else that's doing something like this? I've never heard of it. I've never heard of it down to such a scientific angle. I mean, you, you, you hear the aromatherapy, but this is something else. <laughs> I don't like to do anything halfway. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, apparently not. (laughs) You know, one that I saw that you had, it's called Courage. And um, the whole kind of idea of Chalk Life is to find the courage to follow your passion. And I love the idea of one that has courage. How did you develop that one? Um, I, I think you might be or am are I you about maybe referring to confidence or confidence. that might be the one. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well same thing. Of course confidence, same thing. Now that was the first one I developed and I um actually did it um just to be my scent for the two thousand six Olympics. It was truly something I wanted to make for myself that was really high quality and that's sort of what um, you know, started the whole thing. So everything launched off of that and I had put together essences that invoked energy, confidence and focus in the wearer based on aromatherapy findings. Um and then when I did the whole electric energy test, it found that those specific essences um, all were in the area of 300 kilojoules per mole or higher. So it was really interesting that it just seemed to correlate. It's sort of um, proving that the social emotional properties of essential oils are directly tied to their electric energy. Um, and then I did take the research a step further and I I sent them through a GCMS and I built a code out of minor chemical constituents that represent each category. So basically saying a grouping of 
8 to 20 um, minor chemical constituents and essential oils contribute to their electric energy, which contributes to their social and emotional properties. I'm sorry if I'm talking your ear off about this. No, I love no. it. I could you talk forever what? on it. <laughs> I was thinking that is a true scientist. You are not taking anything for granted. You do it thoroughly and you do it to perfection, which is another, <laughs> obviously, that's what's gotten you through these amazing um, episodes in your life. And, you know, it just, I I read something on your bio that, that kind of seems to encapsulate this. And it says that your attitude in life is to live, love, be phenomenal, and surround yourself with people who believe in the same. Don't you think that's important? You have to have this energy going on. You have to attract it. You have to cultivate it. In order to I do think that is happen. really important. I think you, you get what you put out, um, and if you put a good energy out, you attract the same back in. And I've, I've found that in the team of people that I work with now with SIA, that I just have the greatest team of people around me. I'm so lucky and so blessed, and we're so excited about what we've done and where we're going with the whole product line and, and the whole um, research on the electric energies and um putting it all together. Has this led into anything else? Because you are being so scientific, I'm wondering if you are getting, um, you know, inquiries from, I don't know, the scientific field or, or has it, has it morphed into something even more than this? Well, that's a good question. We're um, looking at getting our paper published in the Science Journal this spring. Um, but right now we're sort of trying to figure out if that's the best direction to go because we might need to be a little bit more um, trade secrets. So we're just right. trying to figure out what the best path is. But we have people who are interested in the research for sure. Um, in fact, you know, I was I was doing the first bit of research through Colorado School of Mines or in conjunction with a group of professors there. And they were so interested in what I was doing, they actually bought me the gas chromatographer mass spectrometer so that I could do the <laughs> second phase of the research. So that's that's no that's nothing cheap, you know. So I was really lucky. It was like a brand new device that I got to um, run all the essences through, which has been so beneficial and um, intriguing to you know the next stage of the research that we're doing. Well, and i i have to I have to make this other comment about you that apparently during the Olympic Games you were referred to by NBC commentators as pure happiness. So I'm not surprised that you have actually turned this into a physical form that you can share with other people. That's pretty incredible. How many people get called that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're just trying to figure out how to bottle it. We're working close. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> Well, um, Michelle, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this amazing career of yours, and I I can't wait to see what happens next, um, and thank you for all the information, and if people want to find out more about your perfumes and what you do, where should they go? It's called um, FiaLab.com, and it's just spelled P-H-I-A-L-A-B.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. For more information about Michelle or Fia Lab, go to chocolife.com.